Hello everyone, welcome back. We are flying by the seat of our pants here a bit today. Last week was two and a half hours long, and I was like, I'm not going to do that again today, and I'm hoping to make this as brief as possible. Well, I kind of have to, right? Because it's the big day. It is. The Super Bowl. Uh, I am incredibly excited. So, I'm keeping track of the time. Um, we're not going to talk about politics today, alright? We're going to just cover... You know, again, last week was two and a half hours, and I was like, dear God, those of you that watched it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm going to try not to do that. Again, I'm definitely not going to do that here, but I'm going to try not to do that going forward. Um, but I realized that if I tried to cover poli the political stuff here and this coming Sunday, and if I did something in the middle of the week, there's just a lot to cover. So here's what, here's all of the stuff that's happened maybe in the last, since this past Friday, going forward up until, you know, next week, all right? So here, here are the things that would require being covered. So the Senate's decision this last Friday to not call additional witnesses and the fallout from that, the uh, Iowa caucuses, which are tomorrow night, the acquittal of Donald Trump in the Senate, which is what's going to happen this coming week, maybe Tuesday, uh, the State of the Union, which is Tuesday night, so right after, I mean... That is going to be the Trumpiest Trump that has ever trumped. Seriously. Donald Trump delivering the State of the Union in an election year within 24 hours after not being, uh, or after being acquitted in the Senate for impeachment. It'll be Billy Bonkers. Anyway, uh, and then the, there is going to be a post-Iowa, the first debate post-Iowa is this coming Friday. So there's a whole bunch of crap to get to. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to cover any political stuff here. I can't decide if I'm going to do something maybe tomorrow after the caucuses or maybe Tuesday after the State of the Union or just get good at condensing things and try to cover all of it next Friday or, or next Sunday. I don't know. I don't know, to be totally honest. But either way, we're not going to do any politics here today. Um, instead, we're going to talk about some cultural stuff, the idea of unifying America. How do we think about America? Does our opinion of America matter? Um, and all of that stuff. And then kind of tie that into this pretty interesting piece that I read in the Huffington Post about Kobe Bryant, and we'll bring that together and, and hopefully, hopefully uh, be done before the Super Bowl. Not hopefully, we are going to be done. If I have to cut it short, then, then I will. Um, anyway, and we'll, we'll also tie it into you know some of the themes that we've talked about over the last few weeks, strategic silence, uh, Friedrich Hayek, you know, talking about uh, concept creep, the twisting of language, and all of that stuff. So anyway, first, talk about the Super Bowl really fast. You know, what's funny is my high school football team always ran out to Thunderstruck by ACDC, and every time I've thought about the Super Bowl, that song has popped into my head this week. It's been thunderstuck in my uh, head, so to speak, right? Anyway, but but yeah, I'm pumped. This is going to be awesome. I I saw a meme that was like, what do Kansas City fans, we don't know what to do during a Super Bowl where we care about the outcome. Like, what do other people do? Uh, so And I was like, I totally relate to that. That's right, because I don't know how to care uh, other than, I guess, just be really pissed, you know, trying to wait for the commercials to get over so we can get back to the football game. Um, but real real fast, thinking about the, the commercials, uh, there's going to be some brand new, awesome, very, very diverse commercials this year. NBC News reported, quote, uh, the featured drag queens in the upcoming Sabra commercial are Ms. Cracker and Kim Chi. Uh, Microsoft ad celebrates the first woman and first openly gay coach in the Super Bowl, Katie Sowers, an offensive assistant for the 49ers. A commercial for TurboTax also features trans actress Trace Lissette and Isis King, according to the LGBTQ advocacy group GLAD. So we're going to have a brand new, the Super Bowl's going to be super woke this year. The ads are going to be very diverse, very inclusive, and we are all going to learn lots of things from watching them. Uh, there's going to be an emphasis on, on girl women, more women um, representation in the commercials as well. There's also going to be some that are going to be about finding common ground. So some of, quote, back to the MS, to NBC, Quote, some of this year's biggest spenders are hoping to unite America by focusing on common themes while also showing the strength derived from our differences. New York Life Insurance, which will air its first Super Bowl spot in 30 years, will show how people express different kinds of love. Quote, we want to emotionally connect with millions of Americans, Kari Axberg, the company's vice president and co-head of marketing, said. 
Anheuser-Busch's U.S. Chief Marketing Director, Marcel Marcondes, Marcondes, said the company's research showed a divided nation that is looking for a sense of togetherness. He said the divisive nature of the presidential election cycle has people wanting messages like, let's leave politics aside and be proud of who you are. That's what matters. The Budweiser commercial, Typical American, directed by Catherine Bigelow, the first female director to win an Oscar, attempts to reverse negative stereotypes by showing, quote, extraordinary people doing good deeds. So I have three thoughts on these commercials. Make some quick, or quick thoughts, quick predictions. First one, I'm just really glad, uh, well, actually, that's the second one. The first one, it makes sense that they're going to address Katie Sowers in these commercials. It is a big deal, her position and the fact that the 49ers are in the Super Bowl. I have no problem with that. Like, highlighting what a big deal it is for this female and lesbian female head coach and it being in the Super Bowl is, that's a big deal. Um, so I have no problem with that. The other thing I will say is that I, I am very thankful for Sabra helping me understand why I should like smash chickpeas. I wouldn't have understand understood the appeal of chickpeas if it weren't for them bringing drag queens in to help me understand why I should like smashed chickpeas. So I think Sabra diver- deserves some kind of award just for helping me understand why I should like hummus, and I wouldn't have understood that previously without seeing dudes wearing girls' clothing. Um, so good job, Sabra. I appreciate that. Here's the thing that to be looking for. I'm calling it right now. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I guess part of me hopes I'm wrong. No one really likes their predictions to be wrong, but I guess this one I'm okay either way. But uh, look for those ads trying to establish common ground. Look for them. There's, they're not going to be woke enough. There's going to be a bunch of pieces written in like Vice and Vox and all this other stuff problematizing these ads. I promise you this coming week, maybe next week, there's going to be a, a smattering of ads or of pieces written about how problematic these ads are, especially the ones looking to find common ground or something. I'm just calling it right now. I could make, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. But uh, wait and see, my friends. Wait and see. We might be wrong. Anyway, okay. So here's what I want to talk about. Does, the question I want to ask, that I want to think about is, does your opinion of America matter? Uh, So this is obviously, this segment is going to be, make a lot more sense to Americans. uh, But this could also be in the context of anyone that values West, what we would say is Western culture. And people try to conflate that with white culture or white values, which is a load of crap to be totally honest, I mean, the ancient Mesopotamians is where we get the Code of Hammurabi, which is some of the first uh, instances of due process in some ways, of uh, innocent until proven guilty in other ways. So, I mean, that's ancient Mesopotamia. We're talking four or 5,000 years ago. Um, the ancient Greeks valued democracy. That's where we get that from. And, and people say, well, that's, they, you know, there's this, the same people that are very interested in making sure that people's identities are known want to take any Western country or European country now and put it into the same hodgepodge of you know white people when really the, the Greeks and the Italians and the French and the Spanish and the British and the Poles and people in the Nordic countries, all these other places, all have their own rich histories and rich traditions, you know, these are places that would war with each other. They didn't go, oh, you're white, we're white, you know what I mean? Like, that's not how it works. It's This has just become this hodgepodge, but the ideas of democracy and polity and, you know, the word democracy is a Greek word. Demo means uh, people, I believe, and kratos is power. So power and people together, you get democracy, power from the people. That's a Greek idea. Um, and so that is a Western idea, but that's something that we saw really begin there. So anyway, the point is, is that this is really geared towards um, people in the West, or people who understand Western values, but specifically Americans. But that doesn't mean there isn't something that other people who aren't from America couldn't get from this. Uh, but I'm just le- letting you know right now on the front end. I'm not sure that I have a viewership that extends outside of the United States, but still worth mentioning. So I want to tease out, there's an article uh, that was written in Vox that was recently, so they were interviewing this woman named Danielle Allen. She's a Harvard political theorist, and she had written this piece in The Atlantic uh, at the end of 2019 all about how Americans need to become citizens again. And so I want to look at the 
interview that Vox, just a brief excerpt of the interview that Vox did, which was titled, Do Americans Still Believe in Their Democracy? That's kind of one of the things I want to talk about. Uh, But the piece that she wrote, that Danielle Allen wrote, was called The Road from Serfdom, American Unity Needs to Be a Priority, and it was predicated on the statement, Americans need to become citizens again. It was all about, we need to become citizens, we need to be unified, and then the Vox piece where they interviewed her was like, do Americans even have the capacity to do that? Do we have any faith in our democracy whatsoever? So I want to look at some excerpts from her article. It's really long. I'll put a link there. It's worth reading, as is the interview that Vox did with her afterwards. So we'll pick it up towards the beginning where she attributes, she talks about factionalism, which is something that our founders were really worried about. And she she attributes the rise of factionalism in the United States, at least the current iteration of it, to the 1970s. Quote, warring tribes faced off along yet another dividing line. One group seeking to establish an American social order on the basis of egalitarian norms. The other less sure that this new order was worth creating, and in some cases actively working to retain the old social order. A battle was joined over how to define Americanness. It's, it is raging now. So I would really like to flush out like her statement about the cultural emphasis on egalitarianism, uh, because I'm not sure that the modern iteration of that same movement would have that same emphasis on egalitarianism, which is this, egalitarian is just actually is true equality, um, not equity. But anyway, that's that's a topic for another time. Anyway, she goes on. As purpose-driven actors, we develop our values and learn to justify them within the context of communities that give our lives meaning and worth. Human moral equality flows from the human need to be the author of one's own life. As a measure of human flourishing, empowerment is more important than wealth. Wealth is merely one possible source of empowerment. It cannot buy what makes nations flourish. She's saying what makes nations flourish is this. Social cohesion, freedom, and healthy institutions. Social cohesion is created by cooperation, and cooperation only occurs if individuals have equal standing. I want to read that last part again, because this is something we're really going to dig into here. Social cohesion, freedom, and healthy institutions. That's what makes nations flourish. Social cohesion is created by cooperation, and cooperation only occurs if individuals have equal standing. We'll get to that here in a minute. The role of government is not to stay out of the way of markets. It is to secure the rights that undergird empowerment, cohesion, and participation. Securing these rights requires combating monopolies. We understand that monopoly power means in the econo- what that means in the economic sense. But the issue of monopoly power applies to the political and social domain too. Gerrymandering creates gerrymandering districts creates monopolistic political power. Our current approach to educational funding, which tightly links it to property taxes, has allowed the socioeconomically advantaged to establish a near monopoly on genuine educational opportunities. Not true. People with money enjoy a position of privilege in the legal system. True. Corporations enjoy one when it comes to the quiet tweaking of bureaucracy and regulation. A proper role of government, nearly forgotten today, but the overriding concern of the founders, is finding ways to prevent undue concentrations of power wherever they occur. Power tends towards self-perpetuation. Uh, it, where it is left undisturbed, it will draw further advantages to itself, shut out rivals, and mete out ever bolder forms of injustice. So we'll go to that. We'll get to that again here in a minute too. In the end, so in the end, Alan concludes that the two solutions to so she lays it out. It's it's a story really written in the Atlantic. So I'm I'm obviously not doing the whole thing right here, but she talks about how we're divided, where that comes from. She totally mishandles the book The Road to Serfdom whenever she talks about that, but that's I'm not not here to address that. Um, but she says in the end the solution to the divisions in America are twofold. She says it's participation and justice. Justice. Here's how she ends. She says the challenges of participation and justice won't be met by markets working independently of politics, and they won't be met by the triumph of one faction over another. No great challenge can be met that way. As a nation, we have been called to be our best and most united selves by inspirational goals. The salvation of the democratic experiment must become such a goal. 
In the first half of the 20th century, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance on thousands of days, Americans in a segregated country spoke of being one nation indivisible. The language papered over a different reality. In 1954, Congress split the phrase by adding the words, under God, and divided the country along in another line. The simple fact is we have lost a shared vocabulary that should bind us all as Americans. We fight over words like patriotism, solidarity, and loyalty. Yet there is another word that defines our relationship. Lincoln knew what that was. The word is union. In a political sense, the word points to something concrete. It means talking honestly, fighting fairly, and planning together. It means choose unity. It's time for all of us to become citizens again. Now, there's a lot there I would add to the words that we fight over, not patriotism, solidarity, or even loyalty, but it's words like what we talked about last week, like what is justice? What is equality? Where, you know, That's where that concept creep is. I think Danielle Allen misses the point in a lot of ways. But her conclusion here is she says, we have to choose unity. We have to become citizens again. So we'll, we'll get into this, but I want to br- do a brief excerpt from the interview she did with Vox afterwards, and then we'll dig into the main issue. So Vox asks her, There's also a reality that the founders were building a republic by and for white property-owning males. There is a convergence of interests that doesn't exist in today's multi-ethnic society. And so the idea of unity, if not quite impossible, feels quixotic. At the same time, there are now more groups competing for political and cultural power, and that creates real, insoluble conflict. Is there a vision of citizenship that can transcend these differences? This is Alan's response. That's the key question, but I wouldn't say we don't have a convergence of interests in the contemporary world, although that convergence may be pretty narrow. I think everyone has an interest in empowerment. Everyone should believe that their own sense of fulfillment or completion requires that they not be buffeted by other people's decisions, that they have some part in shaping the world in which they live, and the only vehicle for achieving that is democracy. We will never all agree about what to do or what's right and what's wrong. And we shouldn't. But first off, yes, we should if there is a way to know what's empirically right and what's empirically wrong. But anyway, but democracy is about this fundamental commitment to the right of empowerment and self-government. This is a shared bedrock of interest, and it's as non-negotiable as air or water or any other basic necessity of life. My hope is that we can inspire this feeling of shared interest in more people. So. Let's look at this. First of all, I want to say I think what Danielle Allen is attempting to do here is actually good. I think she wants to make a difference, and I think that that's a worthy endeavor. So I'm not here to crap all over Danielle Allen generally or anything like that. Uh, I think that her piece is really interesting. She raises some interesting points. I think that there's a lot of dissonance in some of the things she talks about. And the article is too big to really critique. Again, I think that she totally mishandles Road to Serfdom. I will mention briefly one of those statements of dissonance where she says, quote, a proper role of government, nearly forgotten today, but the overriding concern of our founders is fighting ways to prevent undue concentrations of power wherever they occur. Power tends towards self-perpetuation. Where it is left undisturbed, it will draw further advantages to itself, shut out rivals, and mete out ever bolder forms of injustice. Now, I totally agree with that. what Alan is saying there, but she seems to be completely either naive or ignoring the fact that that includes government power, that government power, and especially bureaucratic power, the rise of bureaucracies that we've seen in the U.S. really over the last maybe century or so, um, or probably a little less than that. But those are forms of power that do want to perpetuate their own power, and they have a self-interest in doing that. Um, and so her idea is, well, we need to expand government power so that we can deal with other forms of self-perpetuating power. The fact that she ignores the fact that government does, it's not like government isn't uh, just some thing floating out there. Government has people in it and who adhere to those, that same principle of wanting to perpetuate your own power. Uh, so she seems to ignore that. I don't really understand that, but that, but that's okay. That That's fine. I don't really want to get into that. I just think it's ironic, you know, that there are other entities that want to perpetuate their own power, like a bureaucracy that might, you know, or, or this includes bureaucracies that are created for the greater good or with good uh, causes in mind, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example, back to our concept creep thing, 
Those are bureaucracies are created on college campuses and our own government for these, you know, what sounds like good goals in mind, but they adhere to that same rule of trying to self-perpetuate its own power. But anyway, I want to look at her conclusion. That's not what I'm talking about. I want to look at her conclusion about uh, participation, really. And I'm honestly, believe it or not, I'm going to ignore the part where she talks about justice. I don't have time to get into that. Her idea that the ways we that we come together is for us to all participate, but then we also have to agree on what justice is. She lays out some things I agree with. She talks about other things in a really vague and subjective manner that's like, I don't know if I agree with what you're talking about there. Uh, criminal justice reform is necessary at the same time. It Criminal justice reform in the you know late 80s, early 90s is one of the things that helped stop the crime wave that was totally engulfing the country. So Anyway, I'm, I'm not even going to touch her, her statement about justice. You can draw your own conclusions about it. Like I said, I'll leave a link. But I want to talk about this idea of participation. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, she attributes participation. So she's like, we all have to participate. We all have to want to participate. We all have to be jazzed about getting involved. But part of that has to do with this mutual flourishing and freedom and this idea of this social cohesion. So one of the things she says is that will flourish if there's social cohesion. Cohesion comes from cooperation, and cooperation comes from equal standing. And that makes sense in her analysis, but this idea of us all being, we all need to be unified citizens, and we're all going to have this this uh, flourishing that's going to come from us cooperating because we are, have this social cohesion, and we're all going to get involved. It's like, what are you talking about? There's nothing underneath that in the analysis. Social cohesion might be a way that you can look at and say, oh, people are cooperating because there's social cohesion, or we might have social cohesion and one of ways to observe that is cooperation, but neither of those addresses, co like, what is the thing that binds people? Cohesion is a binding, it's a binding agent. So what bound those people together in the first place that would make them socially have this cohesion that would make them want to cooperate. I've been holding my water this whole time. I don't know why. Anyway, but what, but what makes that happen? In other words, she's talking about ways that you would observe unity, right? Ways that you would observe a common citizenship, but she doesn't talk about what are the things that bind people together. This idea of let's get involved, let's be citizens does nothing to address the root issues that divided people in the first place. It, we, in other words, we can all have the same rights. We can all have the exact same rights as spelled under the law. I would argue that in many ways we do, uh, or in the ways that are most important we do. Anyway, we, we could all have that, but and we could all cooperate in certain ways, but that doesn't mean that we are unified, right? And she's talking about this democratic experiment. Well, do we even agree on what that is? In other words, all of the observations and the things she's talking about up here they're not getting to the meat of it. They're not getting to the root of it. And I would argue that that, that the, the main issue there is how we look at America, how we view the democratic experiment, how we view who we are as a, as a nation, as a people. As, you know, what principles do we adhere to? We're not going to have any cooperation or cohesion or unity or any of this stuff if we don't even agree on what we are. So that's what I want to look at and look at, does it matter if we agree on that? Does it matter our, our opinion of America? Does it matter our opinion of the principles that we adhere to? And how do we, um, how do we uh, reconcile that idea of our opinions with criticisms? In other words, can, how, how can you criticize America? How should you view it? You know, does it have to be all rose-colored or does it have to be all catastrophe? Uh, so that's what I want to look at. So there's a couple things. I'm just going to shotgun a couple kind of cultural issues here, uh, and I'm going to put links to all this. I don't have time to dig into this, probably nor should I dig into all of this, but these are things that kind of inform the conversation and inform what I'm talking about here, and you can further look at that by just digging into the links. I put all everything that I reference uh, in the description here, so you'll be able to find it. Okay, anyway, so first off, Huffington Post gives a list of all these cultural influencers, the main people they're looking at who are influencing the culture, uh, and they have a list of, I think it was like 20 people 
that they're saying, this is a big deal. This is the important stuff that's influencing the culture. Now, I honestly don't really have a, you know, this is kind of one of those good, bad, or neutral things. I think they're probably not wrong that they're saying that these people are influencers. My guess is they're saying that these people are influencing the people who would be influenced by them, but we want them to have a bigger reach. And some of it is some stuff where it's like influencing, uh, you know, gender fluidity and kind of going back to really some of that stuff that uh, happened in the 80s, you know, where there was that kind of, you know, how Prince, you know, used to dress and stuff like that. I forgot what that's called. Androgyny. How there was, you know, there was some that it was hip to be androgynous in a lot of ways. But anyway, so they, they talk about things that are influencing the culture there. But what I would say is that none of that, that, like all of those cultural influences there would certainly be influencing a certain part of the culture, but nothing that's kind of underneath that. There's Again, it's, it is influencing the people that would be influenced by it. And there's, there's a whole lot of other people that aren't part of that. And I, and I don't think that's good or bad necessarily, but it's something worth looking at in terms of thinking about what are the things that are influencing, that are shaping our cultural view, because part of that is how we view America. Uh, here's another thing. So Slate has an advice column. They recently received this conundrum from one of their readers. Quote, I'm a cis woman in kind of a classic millennial sex pickle. I'm really repelled by heterosexuality politically and personally, but I'm also really into, and then she references the male anatomy. I've been thinking maybe I should look for bi dudes slash bi curious gay dudes, but I'm not sure how best to do that. What would you think of a woman being on Grindr or Scruff? I'm assuming those are gay dating apps. I know Grindr is, I don't know what Scruff is, but anyway. I do want to be respectful of gay men's spaces and not horn in where I'm not welcome, but I really would love to find a verse guy with queer politics who would be up for casually dating a woman. What do you think? If you were me, where would you look? So, again, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but the idea that there's a, I'm a heterosexual woman who's politically opposed to, or, um, heterosexuality, I don't understand that. And one thing that's interesting is Slate, in their answer, I'll put a link to it, they never even, like, they don't question the premise of how do you, how can you be politically opposed to your own heterosexuality? Like, that seems really strange. Like, I would think that'd be a relevant question. You know, another thing is like, okay, flip that. How would you feel about a person who is politically opposed to, he to homosexuality? Right? That actually happened in the United States for a long time. It was a big dividing issue. So, like, wh how, why is it, why would you not question the premise of being politically opposed to heterosexuality? Again, this has to, the fact that Slate doesn't question that, which Slate's a mainstream publication, means that there's something going on culturally where it's like, oh yeah, this is a normal question. All right, let's engage with this idea. Another thing about our culture and just thinking about America generally CNN ran a piece uh, recently that was titled The Best Country in the World to Raise a Child. It's not America, survey finds. And the metrics that were used were kind of wonky, but it was about, they had things like safety and other really, I would say, skewed metrics that they used in terms of safety where they didn't tease it out. They looked at America generally and not where there are places, you know, and one of the first videos I did was about gun violence and how there are some places where the gun violence in some of these cities is like 64 times the national average. So anyway, but they're, but they're talking about, okay, well, America is not a good place to raise a kid. There was another thing that was done a couple of years ago. I'll put a link to Christina Hoff Summers covered it. She's, she's one, if you're not familiar with, she's pretty great, but about how there was a thing that was really similar about how America is one of the worst places in the world to be a woman and which is absolutely insane. And they like they put America as worse than lots of places where women can be uh, murdered for not wearing a hijab. They said America was worse than a, a list of these countries where rapists can get out of being held criminally criminally liable for if they marry the person that they raped. And there's there's like a dozen countries where that's still legal. It's absolutely insane. I should have I should have put the list up here just to mention it. But anyway, that, that recent CNN report and then the report from a while back about, so America is so bad for students and America is so bad for women. Again, this has to do with how do we think about um, this American experiment as Daniel Allen talks about the democracy. You know, we have to believe in it. Well, this we're seeing unilaterally negative, uh, or sorry, asymmetrically negative representation of 
views about the country and about the culture generally. Uh, anyway, then th there's another thing. I put a link in here. So I re we do have a suicide, a huge, huge booming suicide problem. So in a time whenever we have more material wealth than ever before, people are killing themselves more than ever before. I believe this last year was one where we actually experienced an increase in life expectancy. It had been declining as a result of rising suicide rates. And so we actually saw a rise in life expectancy. I think it was this last year. But that is a problem. That does help shape or how we think about America, the fact that people are committing suicide so much. And, and how, do we, how do we reconcile that? SNL did a song about the Oscars called White Male Rage and about how all the movies that won awards this year were all about white men and how angry they were and how enraged they were. So that's another cultural thing, you know, this idea of toxic masculinity, white male rage, all this other stuff. These are things that influence how we think about where we are. And the American Dirt stuff that I talked about last week, this book that Oprah recommended for a book club, and there's this big controversy around it. Go back and, wa and watch that segment if you don't know what I'm talking about. But this book was written to garner sympathy for people who come to the United States illegally, but then the author got a whole bunch of crap for not, the book still wasn't woke enough for people, which is absolutely insane. So here, but here, I think this criticism from Vox about American Dirt, or this piece that was written about all the criticisms American Dirt got, I think wraps all of this together in terms of what I'm trying to talk about. Quote, Chicana writer Miriam Gerba takes Cummins to task, Cummins was the author of American Dirt, for one, appropriating genius works by people of color, two, slapping a coat of mayonesa on them to make palatable to taste buds, estadas unidencias, and repackaging them for mass radically colorblind consumption. Gerba describes American Dirt as trauma porn that wears social justice fig leaf, arguing American Dirt fails to convey any Mexican sensibility. It aspires to be Dia de los Muertos, but it instead embodies Halloween. Most especially, she critiques the way Cummins positions the United States as a safe haven for migrants, a utopia waiting for them outside the bloody crime zone of Mexico. Mexicanos get raped in the USA too, she writes. You know better. You know how dangerous the United States is, and you still chose to frame this place as a sanctuary. It's not. So... I think that that right there totally encompasses what I'm talking about here. We've got a lot of stuff going on in our culture right now where people don't agree on certain words. They don't agree on certain visions of governance. They don't agree on certain values and principles. And whenever Daniel Allen is talking about, well, we just all have to get motivated and get back into this and become citizens again. Citizens are part of a country and countries are usually revolve around a set of principles, a set of values, and a set of ideals. And part of that has to be, how do you see this country? Do you see it as a place worth being in or not? What's really ironic about this is that this person who's criticizing American dirt is saying, I can't believe you would say this is some utopia that is safe for people. It's like, well, okay, well, why are people coming here? Like, literally, there are my migrant caravans as it's called now, euphemistically, right now that have been organizing in South America, moving through Mexico to get here by the time it's nice enough to cross the border. Like, what? where else is this happening? Like, seriously, like to say, well, you know better, you know how dangerous the U.S. is. It's like, okay, well, why don't you go tell the people who are crossing the border illegally? Say, no, 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 it's too dangerous here. You need to go back. It's way dangerous here. You're totally mistaken about what America is. I'm not, again, I'm not here to pick apart every little thing there, but the point is, is that that view is a pretty widespread view of that democratic experiment, that American experiment that Daniel Allen is talking about in the Atlantic and saying, well, people just need to get motivated and get back involved and we all have to become citizens again. Well, we need to agree on the worthiness of the place that we are citizens of. We need to, or at the very least, agree on the principles at very least, agree on the principles. And here's the point, is that every rights movement, every other, and this is where the criticism comes in, all right? I want to be really specific here, okay? Because what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is you can't criticize America. I'm not saying that at all. America has had lots of criticisms that have been lob, or lobbed towards it over the years since its founding that have been totally legitimate. 
that's how we've progressed. But my point is, is that people like Frederick Douglass, people like the or in the abolitionist movement, Abraham Lincoln, those going forward during Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, the Suffragette Movement, and so on and so forth, were all consisted of people that pointed at the principles of our country and said, these are good principles, we're just not living up to them. We're, we suck at living up to this in this way right here at this time in history. We're not going to crap all over the principle. It's a good principle. Instead, let's be better about living up to this principle. So that's why this is important, is that as much as I agree with Daniel Allen's assessment that we need to be citizens again, that we need to get involved again, there are other things I don't agree with in what she says. Again, you can read the article, judge it for yourself. Maybe I'll talk about it some other time. But the point is, is that we're not going to do that if we don't have some agreement on the principles that take place here or the principles that matter here in the first place. And so I, I mentioned just a few of, again, kind of the um, asymmetrical visions of America that are being put out there. The 1619 Project in the New York Times recently is one of those. You know, one of the things that Daniel Allen talks about in that interview with Vox is she says one of the things that people don't agree on is how to tell the story of America's history. Is it genocide and bigotry and slavery and all this other stuff? Or is it liberty and freedom and all these other things and these ideals? And she says we can't even agree on that. But she just, then she just kind of leaves it alone as if that's not relevant to uniting people and bringing them back to becoming citizens again and being you know unified, this union again, as she quoted Abraham Lincoln talking or to that he mentioned. So anyway, the point is is that we have to have some type of common agreement on how we view America, or at the very least, how we tease out the flaws in America, which are very real from the good things about America, which are also very, very real. And one of those things, I would argue, is the principles that were written down in the Constitution. Whenever I read the Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech a few weeks ago, he references the Get... I think it was the Gettysburg Address, or it might have been um, the Emancipation Proclamation, one of those two things, but also references him and Lincoln both reference the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, where he says... We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, they all pointed at the principles and said, these are good, these are true. We, we, this is a good thing for us to rally around. This would be a thing we could be unified in, but we just have to be better about living up to that, be better about making sure this applies to everyone and not just throw the whole thing away. But what happens now is that whenever people criticize America or criticize the American experiment, they say, well, George Washington was a slave owner, or Thomas Jefferson had slaves, and therefore that invalidates those founding principles. And it's absurd. And here's why this is important. America is a special place. I'm sorry, it is. Special in a lot of really important ways. The average lifespan of a constitution in the entire world is 17 years. We've had ours for 232 years. That means that there's something special about those principles that we're founded on. And so to what Daniel Allen was saying, we're not always going to agree on all these different things. Now, I do think that there are certain things that we do need to agree on, which would be those founding principles. But So even if we're not going to agree on everything, we do have to agree on what the rules of the game are. We do have to agree on what our what are the parameters in which we're operating on? And that includes the constitutional principles. And why that's important, we have such a, a uh, American-centric or Western-centric view of things, especially on the left, where we ignore the places that don't have that. So here's just a few really quick examples. This is recently from NPR. This is like two weeks ago. Chinese universities are enshrining Communist Party control in their charters, in the university charters, quote, they have downgraded or erased language about academic freedom from their charters while adding a new clause, quote, the university communist party committee is the core leadership of the school, end quote. So in China, they're saying, 
yeah, we don't really care about academic freedom anymore. This is about adherence to the Communist Party. Ironically enough, another thing that Hayek writes about in that same chapter I referenced last week, but we're not going to get into that. So that's happening. That, that will not happen in the United States. That will not happen in the United States. It's happening in China that we should be worried about. That's scary. Both France and Germany, and there are other, West, even this is European countries now, but are imp imposing regulations on Facebook, and they're going to start fining Facebook for not policing hate speech out of their country. Emmanuel Macron delivered this big speech about how, you know, we do care about speech, but we also want to police hate speech and all this other stuff. France does not have the same First Amendment protections that we have. Neither does Germany. We saw the same thing, or at least a similar thing, in New Zealand and Australia. At least there is this Australian, they call it a gun buyback. Unless the government sold you the gun, that's called a confiscation. But anyway, you know, potato, potato, right? And then Jacinda Ardern did that thing in New Zealand after the Christchurch shooting, where they did pass a law outlawing, you know, these assault-style weapons or whatever, so on and so forth. Uh, they, that could not happen in the United States. That they were trying to do that in Virginia, and that dog, that dog's not going to hunt because it violates the Constitution. Uh, another thing that we've seen in recent years, we've seen multiple New York Times op-eds calling to repeal the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. We've it's a it's actually a, a discussion happening right now, getting rid of the Electoral College packing the Supreme Court, all these other things that, that would fundamentally alter the way that American experiment, that democratic experiment that Daniel Allen references, it would alter the way that that operates entirely. Here's another example of something that really should worry us. You know, there's, this, there's a twofold aspect here. There's a part that's humorous and a part that's worrying. Uh, Elizabeth Warren recently said that she would criminally penalize tech co companies for allowing disinformation on their platforms. Now, by the way, this should come as no surprise. As I mentioned before, her economic advisor, um, oh man, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. It's a French guy, uh, Zuckman, Gabriel Zuckman. One of the things that he uh, co-authored was this big thing about economic justice or something like that. I can't remember. But one of the policy proposals in that was having laws against disinformation in the media and having government-run media organizations. So the fact that Warren would present something like this doesn't surprise me if someone like Gabriel Zuckman is influencing her. And I will say it's incredibly irony. You know, you would think that, okay, well, if Twitter and Facebook would be punished for allowing misinformation on their platforms, presumably they would have to ban Elizabeth Warren from their platforms or else face being criminally prosecuted, you know, for her tweets about her Native American ancestry or saying some bullcrap about Bernie Sanders, you know, presumably CNN would also be banned and so would NPR and so on and so forth for misinformation. But anyway, uh, I digress. The, the reason why that's scary is that she has no problem calling for, you know, we're going to criminalize the tech platform. You know, this is a there, this is a debate happening right now, but disinformation, according to who? According to Elizabeth Warren? Are you kidding me right now? Like, come on now. But the fact that she says that, you know, I mentioned this a long time ago, whenever Beto O'Rourke, if you remember who he is, uh, talked about, hell yes, I'm going to take your AK-47s and your AR-15s. You know, I said, yeah, it's, it's funny that he says that, that's absurd, but he's not saying, hell yes, I'm going to give everyone a bullfrog. Why? Because he knows that no one will, no one's going to, that's not going to resonate with anyone. No one's going to go, man, I really wish I had a bullfrog, if only. You know, he's saying we're going to take your guns because he knows there's a certain constituency that's going to support that. In the same way, whenever Warren's saying, yeah, we're going to prosecute Facebook for misinformation as defined by me, um, that there is a certain contingent that's going to support that. And so that should frighten us, especially because of the principles that this country was founded on. And that includes freedom of expression. Uh, again, now, the First Amendment only applies to the government. It's not a, a tech thing. Tech platforms can do what they want. But the fact that Warren, is who would represent the government there, right, is wanting to police that speech, There's that that's a problem. So, okay, let's wrap this up here because Super Bowl is going to start soon. All right, so the main thing I'm getting at is how we view America has everything to do with whether or not we unite as a country. There are a lot of things we don't have to agree on. One of the things we do have to agree on are the principles that unite us. And we have to separate out criticisms that are legitimate criticisms 
That, again, civil rights movement would be an example of that. Uh, the abolition movement, suffragette movement, so on and so forth. We have to separate those criticisms out from criticisms on the very principles that allowed those movements to succeed. One of the things that got those movements to succeed was them pointing at the principles and saying, hey, we're not living up to that. We need to do better. Okay. So even if we don't have to agree on everything, we do have to agree on the rules of the game and what binds us. And that's what Daniel Allen misses. So in conclusion, what should we do? How should we view America? Does our opinion matter? And if, if so, how can we simultaneously not ignore the bad parts while acknowledging the good parts? And I want to kind of close by reading an excerpt from this piece that Huffington posted on Kobe Bryant and the legacy of Kobe Bryant. Uh, it's titled, Kobe Bryant wasn't a myth or a monster. He was human. Quote, Bryant's death has brought up complicated and uncomfortable questions, ones that have become more common in the Me Too era. How do we reckon with beloved people who do horrible things? How do we make space for the pain survivors field and for how much Bryant meant to sports fans and the black community and other people of color? The danger lies in denying the totality of Bryant's story, whether by erasing his accomplishments and what he symbolizes to his fans, or by denying that he could be capable of committing rape when there is credible accusation against him. And they're quoting, they quote um, a, a different author, a different writer who says that Ishmael stressed what everyone needs and needs to give to others, grace and space. Huffington Post goes on to conclude, no one should be defined by the worst things they've done. We need to model how to hold space for all of these different feelings said Jeff Pereira, a public speaker who focuses on healthy masculinity. And it's okay to mourn the people you thought, Bryant, was, and also a complete picture, have a holistic look at who the man was. We should be able to say, I love Kobe Bryant, the man, the player, and also say he did some harmful things. I think that's true. I'm not here to, I'm not trying to talk about Kobe Bryant specifically, but the point is, whenever they say, Ironically, Huffington Post, who wants to define America by the worst things it's done, New York Times, 1619 Project, wants to define America by the worst things it's done. I think it's right. No one should be defined by the worst things it's done. So let's replace that line there, instead of Kobe, with America. It's okay to mourn the country, uh, that, or to maybe think about the country as you think it is, and also have a complete holistic look at who the country is, and be able to say, I love America as a country and everything that it's accomplished, but also say that America did some harmful things. So I, I mean, think about that. America is a country. It was the founding principles and documents were written by people. Um, but those principles they acknowledge, they say were outside of themselves. They say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So the founders said, we have rights, but government didn't give them to us. And those principles that they founded our Constitution on later on is what allowed these other rights movements to flourish. And did America always live up to that? No. Does it always? No. But are we continually progressing and do we have to have an agreed upon set of principles to rally around and to point to and say, how are we doing? That's why companies have vision statements. You know, at least the ones that do it right, or organizations, ministries, so on, they have something they can look at and go, how are we doing it that? How are we doing it that? And so that's, that's I have to, I'm just going to leave it there. The game's going to start soon. But the point is this, is that I agree with Daniel Allen that we do all have to agree on principles, or, or that we all have to have a social cohesion, we all have to cooperate, and all of this stuff. But unless we can agree on the set of principles that unite us, agree on how to tell that American story on how to view America, then we're only going to continue to divide and, and, and fracture outwards. And part of that, I think that, weirdly enough, Huffington Post lays out a really good way of doing that, and that is to acknowledge, look, there's good and there's bad. You can't only focus on one aspect. You have to allow for room to grieve the bad parts while at the same time acknowledging the good parts and not destroying the whole thing because of bad parts. Um, so that would be my challenge to you and something to think about going forward in the debates in the State of the Union and whenever we're looking at criticisms of this and that and toxic this and you know, you know, non-inclusive this, whatever, think about, okay, 
can we have a, a space for wanting to call America to do better in ways that it can do better as much as it can, right, and to shift our culture as much as it can, while at the same time acknowledging the good things and acknowledging the bedrock founding principles that made it as good as it is and was able to, again, allow those movements to be as successful and allow it to be the place that people want to come to still from all over the world, regardless of what that person says about how horrible and how dangerous and how terrible it is. It, you know, we have to decide how are we going to look at it? Are you going to look at it primarily as negative and ignore all the bad, all the good stuff so you can tear it down? Or can you look at the principles as good and then just continually go back? Okay, the principles are good. How are we doing? Principles are good. How are we doing? Anyway, because uh, th- those, those visions are going to be presented going forward. And they have been those different views of America's so bad or America's amazing, you know, like what Trump's new, the slogan is keep America great, I think is one of the things he's saying. It's like, well, we, we, there's probably a middle ground here, you know, where there's always room for improvement because we're people. Think of America as people, right? You know, you, there is good, there is bad, um, but it's nuanced. You can't just focus on one thing. Anyway, okay, go Chiefs. I'm going to see you guys. I'll, I'll post all the links and everything. Again, if, if this type of stuff you like, please like, share, subscribe. Return to Reason on YouTube, on Spotify. Follow me on Twitter. That's at MyMundayInMind. I will be giving updates on when I'm going to actually talk about some of this political stuff. Uh, and also, oh, I'm going to tell you really fast. So the whenever I talked about the um, the giveaway, my, the, my wife was like, dude, you didn't even preface it right. Uh, and so... Whenever I said all of the entries, these are four ways to enter, enter or whatever, there's additional entries, which is the Twitter and the Spotify and Facebook stuff, but the way to enter, so the, cause I said, how many entries do we have? I need to announce this. She goes, well, technically there are zero. No one has actually entered because what you said is not the same as what the legal rules of the giveaway were. So we're going to extend it out. So the way that you do it is you can comment on any of the videos, be a subscriber, and comment on any of my YouTube videos. You can say, hey, you freaking moron. Why don't you learn how to do uh, giveaways better? That's fine. I'm okay with that. But you need to be a subscriber and you need to comment on the videos. That's the way to enter. You get additional entries by following and retweeting my tweet where I send out the videos. Any of those is fine. Um, subbing on or following on Spotify or sharing on Facebook. So the way you enter is by subbing, commenting on any of my YouTube videos. You can you know, be pissed or whatever. That's fine. And then the way you get additional entries are those other three things. I'll clarify that in the comments. Anyway, I'm sorry for anyone that I that is inconvenienced by that. I apologize. Uh, that's my own stupid fault. All right. Go Chiefs. I will see you guys next time. Peace.